0: discussion podcast hosted by Heather and Kenny yes that's right and why uh, did you
1: switch that what are you doing
0: I don't know I thought it would be kind of fun I thought
1: you made a mistake I was like what is this
0: no okay I was just I thought it would be fun to kind of flip it around a little bit
1: it's real cute anyway Um, continue
0: so today we're going to be looking at the movie Nosferatu from 1922 Um, So a few basic uh, facts about the movie. It was released in 1922, directed by F.W. Murnau, who is one of my favorite silent movie directors. He also did the 1928 masterpiece, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, which uh, won the first Oscar ever. And the first Oscars, the first Academy Awards, they had separate awards, kind of like what they planned to do this year, and then they scrapped it after everyone hated it. Where um, this year, instead of they having best picture, they were going to have like best popular film and then best picture as separate categories. But everyone in the world hated that idea, so they didn't do it. But in the original Academy Awards from 1929, they did have something like that they had best production and then most artistic production. And Sunrise won most artistic production. So, a little fun fact from cinema history there. Um, it stars Max Schreck and Greta Schroeder. (laughs) Did I say that? You think I said that
1: right? Perfect.
0: Heather speaks German for, uh, our listeners, uh, at home. So, if you saw this name, but with an umlaut over the O, how would you say that?
1: Schroeder.
0: Schroeder. Schroeder. Um, okay. So, Greta Struder, uh, <laughs> And uh, it has an original score composed by Hans Erdmann, um, although much of this score has unfortunately been lost. So the version that we watched, which is the Kino restoration, um, fills some of the sections with classical music instead of the original score, which we don't have. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's kind of fun, uh, funny that, you know, this silent film has a score. Um, But uh, it's true that a lot of silent films had scores written by composers. Mm -hmm. They just weren't recorded onto the film the way that later, you know, uh, uh, movies, the actual film would have an audio track on it um, that would allow the synchronized uh, score to be played along with the film. Um, Instead... You would distribute the written score along with the film and then uh, movie theaters would have like an organist or, you know, musicians that worked there and who would play the score along with That's the awesome. film. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And there are some, uh, a few theaters even today that will play silent movies and still have like an organist play oh, along man. with it. So
1: I would love to see that.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um... And uh, the movie was written by Henrik Gullain, who also co-wrote Paul Wegener's 1920 horror film, The Golem, How He Came Into the World, uh, which we talked about a little bit when we talked about Frankenstein as an influence on that film. Um, And this was an unlicensed adaptation of the Bram Stoker novel Dracula from 1897. Um, But the copyright had not run out on the novel, um, so Galain tried to avoid getting into legal trouble by changing the characters' names. Um, but it did not work. Uh, Stoker's Widow sued for copyright infringement and won, resulting in a court order for all copies of the film to be destroyed. Luckily for us, uh, they didn't get all of them, so the film <laughs> does survive. Unlike a lot of silent movies, which is it's kind of a miracle, because um, you know, most silent films weren't intentionally trying to be destroyed, and yet most of them do not survive. Most silent films uh, have been lost. But we do have this one, so that's cool. Um, So, a little plot summary before we get started. So, I'm going to spoil the film, so if there are anybody who missed it in the theater... Everyone knows the story, whether they know it or not. Yeah, so, um, it's one of those. So, um, the young professional Thomas Hutter and his nervous wife, Ellen, live a peaceful life in Visborg. Hutter's boss, Nock, sends Hutter to Transylvania to draw up papers for Count Orlok's purchase of a house in Visborg. On his way to Orlok's castle... Hutter finds an old book that warns against the vampire Nosferatu, a creature that drinks human blood and must sleep during the day in a coffin filled with plague soil. He laughs at the foolish superstition of the book and of the fearful villagers who warn him against going up to the castle. Orlock turns out to be a creepy weirdo who takes an interest in a picture of Ellen, saying she has a real nice neck, and bites (laughs) Hutter's neck while he's sleeping, though he initially misdiagnoses these bite marks as mosquito bites. After seeing Orlok crawl into a coffin, being carted off towards Visborg, Hutter makes his escape from the castle. As he recuperates in a hospital, Ellen and the other denizens of Visborg are threatened by a plague epidemic that's really the work of Orlok's blood-sucking activities. So, um, to get started, uh, what did you think of the movie, Heather? Have you seen this one before? Yeah,
1: but it's... I did the math this morning, and I haven't seen it in nine years so things are a lot different. It's, uh, it's not that I could forgot it completely, but, you know, pretty much. Um, I remember liking it a lot more, but I don't think I'd seen very many horror movies at that time, but I, I do still like it. It's just in a different way, you know?
0: Interesting. What do you think is different about your appreciation of it now?
1: I don't want to say it's boring, because the imagery is so good; like, it's mesmerizing, you know.
2: Yeah, but, but it, it is plot wise
1: is a little hard, but it, you know, it's worth it. It's like so worth it just to like look at it. It's hypnotizing. I, yeah, I love. I love
0: it. I, yeah, I love the cinematography in mm-hmm. this, um and there's there's a lot of camera movement too. Um, that's really interesting um certain scenes i think are sometimes i'm sitting there going like wow how did they do this shot back then i mean um this was all filmed with a single camera because that's what they had
1: Mm -hmm. um fancy
0: and uh you know there's these these really cool shots like um i really like um the way they filmed the boat scenes so after orlock leaves his castle he travels um He's in a coffin that's below deck on a ship that cra- travels across the ocean, like in the novel, and um, as it's going, he's like sneaking out of his coffin and killing the sailors one by one um, and there's just some really cool shots of the ship. Um, there's one where um, the camera seems to be floating over the ocean and approaches the, the ship rather quickly um, and sort of goes alongside it so'm I'm ima- i I think that probably you know, Murnau or his cameraman must have been on another boat that was approaching the boat, and just under cranking the camera so that the shot would look like it's moving quicker than it actually is, because um, obviously they didn't have, you know, a plane or something to be on, right. you know, in those days. So
1: that um, that must have been pretty progressive for the early twenties, right?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. So I think. Um, yeah, we're starting to see movies get beyond the sort of stage bound early days of cinema where it was like set the camera up in one place Mm -hmm. and then have the actors play out some kind of drama in front of it. Um, and directors like Murnau who are on the cutting edge are starting to experiment with different kinds of angles and camera movements and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, and, uh, Murnau just got more and more sophisticated. So if you watch Sunrise, it's like it's really interesting. All the camera movements that he's got in there, and he's got like all these composite shots where you've got like different things in the uh, being added into the negative. So you've got like you know two different scenes that you're seeing simultaneously and stuff. There's really neat stuff going on. Um, And unfortunately, the addition of sound in the at the end of the twenties and into the thirties. Um, kind of put the kibosh on a lot of that experimentation because once you have sound that's this whole extra piece of equipment that you have to have recording the sound at the same time and they were very bulky and unwieldy at first so it was a lot easier to just keep the camera locked down um, so that's one of the reasons I think I kind of prefer Nosferatu to um, the 1931 Dracula really? Um, yeah
1: oh shit okay
0: which i'm realizing that i bring up the 1931 dracula i think pretty much every episode Do you really so
1: well i really love that movie so
0: yeah i can't stop talking about it so maybe we should just do an episode on it
1: <laughs> i would love to
0: okay um so bye <laughs> well we'll do this one first it's, it's any <laughs> companion piece right um yes because they're both adaptations of the the novel and that was something i wanted to talk about was um the changes from the novel So, Heather and I have both read the book.
1: Well, yeah, but for me it was like 20 years ago, so
0: Um, good luck. It's been a while for me, too, but um, I have a really good memory. Um, Mm. And, uh, I don't know, I've just been been more in touch with, you know, the novel uh, through, I don't know, reading about it and stuff. So, I'm pretty aware of, like, the changes that were made. Um, So... I mean, the most obvious thing if you watch the movie is that all the characters' names are different. Um, So I've got a list of correspondences here that might be helpful to some of our listeners. Um, So Hutter in this movie is Jonathan Harker. Ellen is Mina. Orlock is Dracula. And Knock is a combination of two characters. Harker's boss, Peter Hawkins, and the more prominent character is the madman, Renfield. Uh, and then Bulwer is Van Helsing. Um, so it's kind of interesting to me that this and the 1931 Dracula both um, combined two characters for the Renfield character, neither of them could just have Renfield on his own. Um, they sort of needed him to have more to do, I guess, in the early part of the film. So in the 31 Dracula, they combined Jonathan Harker with Renfield. Um, here they combined Harker's boss with Renfield. Um, And uh, a lot of things that a lot of characters that were major characters in the book are not in the movie. So the Van Helsing character, Bulwer, doesn't really contribute much to the plot, um, whereas he's Dracula's main antagonist in the book and in most of the film versions, including uh, the 1931 film. Um, And uh, Lucy, Mina's friend, who has the different suitors that play such a big role in the book, is basically absent from the movie. So, um, yeah, what did you think about the
2: changes from the book, Heather?
1: Mm. Well, I mean, I feel like since it's a silent film, it's not like characters can be like super fleshed out or do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. Eh. Yeah, yeah, they,
0: they kind of have to simplify it, right? Because yeah. the one thing you don't want in a silent film is like a ton of dialogue because it can only be presented via the intertitles. Um, so it slows the story down a lot, and it's just not that fun to watch a really dialogue-heavy silent movie. Um, so they do their best to convey as much as they can through mm-hmm. visuals, through mm-hmm. the actions of the characters. And I think they do a good job of that here. Yeah. Um, like I really like the scene early on when um, Hutter gets the news that he's going to be traveling to Transylvania, and he goes home and tells his wife. And he's like this—he's like a little kid. Like he's a super naive character yeah. in this movie, and he's just like, "Huzzah! I'm going off to the land of thieves and <laughs> and, phantoms. and phantoms!" And he's sort of like practically dancing around the room <laughs> and like running. He's running through the different rooms of the house to like pack his stuff. He's like grabbing his suitcase and his stuff. And meanwhile, Ellen is just totally static. So, so you know, in the frame, you've got uh, Jonathan run, rushing around in the background. And in the foreground, you've got Ellen just like standing there, totally disconsolate. Um, and so you could tell everything about this dramatic situation just from the motion of the characters. You know, like the, the, mm-hmm. the physical acting going on is really helpful.
1: Yeah, it's. They do everything really dramatically, but they have to. And it's interesting how how well they were able to like balance that where it's not just insane looking but you know it conveys the the idea of what's going on you know yeah i liked it
2: yeah uh, yeah
0: so they had to kind of simplify the plot so i think it makes sense to cut out a lot of characters Definitely. and a lot of the otherwise stuff otherwise it would be like a
1: 10 hour movie
0: yeah yeah because i think Part of the pacing is also due to the fact that it's a silent film. So you have to go slow when you have to, you know, explain every detail through visuals Mm -hmm. or through a title card that stays on screen for an uncomfortably long period of time. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. One thing that is a big change is the ending of the film. So in the novel, um, they chase Dracula all the way back to Transylvania and they kill him there by I think they stick him in the heart with a silver knife. Um, Whereas in the film, it's the Mina character, Ellen, who uh, destroys Count Orlok. Um, She finds Hutter's book that says that the only way to defeat the vampire is to uh, for a a pure woman to uh, sacrifice herself to him. Uh, And he'll get so distracted, I guess, by her beauty that He uh, forgets to go home to his coffin, and he's caught by the daylight and uh, destroyed. So that's what happens. Um, She ends up dying in the end, but it's to save the whole city from Count Orlok. And um, a fun fact about that is that um, this is kind of the origin of the idea that the vampire can be killed by sunlight. Because in the novel, Dracula is just kind of annoyed by sunlight like it's it's more in the category of things that vampires will avoid it if at all possible but that they're not like insta kills like garlic or crosses Um, i think there's even a scene in the novel where he's out and about in the daylight but he just has like a a parasol or something to keep the sun off of him um but i i say it's sort of the introduction of that because i do know that in like the vampire vampire mythology that bram stoker was drawing on for dracula um, there is the idea that you can distract the vampire um, and, until daylight comes and defeat him that way. Um, funnily enough, what you have to do is put a bunch of beans on a table.
1: Oh yeah, I love this.
0: And uh, I love this shit. And so when the vampire comes to your house, he'll see the beans on the table, and I guess vampires have OCD. They have this mm-hmm. compulsive need to count things. Um, and so they'll start counting the beans. And then if there's enough beans, then they won't be able to finish counting by the time the sun comes up. So I always wonder, like, did Sesame Street know about that when they created the count? The count? Yeah, because like like, that's so. his thing.
1: Yeah, totally. I've, this is what, this is the story that I often tell people.
0: Yeah. But anyway, what, what do you think about the, the change to the ending?
1: I thought that I just really, when he dies in this movie, it's like the best part yeah i just loved that death
0: yeah where he's kind of he's got his his arms out you said it was like a thriller pose like the michael jackson music video thriller
1: and so he he kind of just like fades away and then there's like the smoke Mm -hmm. and i loved it i thought that was cool yeah it's great
0: it's it's not really like over the top um i mean his acting is yeah extremely theatrical but all that we get as far as like the character's death is just a sort of the character sort of vanishes there's like a wipe effect where mm-hmm. he he disappears and Which, then we get the little smoke w- on the bottom of the screen would
1: that be like really cool effects for the early 20s or yeah
0: i don't know how like um innovative the special effects were in this movie compared to other movies that were coming out at around the same time um uh, I have seen some other like early 1920s horror movies um, that have special effects in them, like uh, the uh, Swedish film The Phantom Carriage has, uh, as you might imagine, a phantom carriage in it mm. that is translucent, you know, and the the driver is translucent. So there are a lot of effects like that where ghostly characters appear translucent. So that wasn't a new idea of sort of layering uh, mm. images on top of each other so that they look... Uh, see-through
1: is that how they do that
0: i think so yeah and um so yeah i don't really know i can't say how innovative any of the effects were and whether they would have been amazing at the time but i i will say that i really like a lot of the special effects in this i Um, did i like them again better than the 1931 dracula i like um of course everybody loves the the scene where in the the hold of the boat uh the sailor starts Mm -hmm. investigating the coffins and the the lid blows off and then Mm -hmm. uh orlock stands up out of the coffin but he's sort of like completely rigid and just rises up magically
1: it's a very iconic image yeah Yeah. it's one of the reasons why you should definitely see this movie Mm -hmm. because you need to see like in context where these images come from because you'll see that referenced like a lot of places you know
0: That one and then him going up the stairs where you just see his shadow. I
1: love that. That's my favorite, favorite part. That's so cool looking.
0: Yeah, I also really like the special effects to do with the Harker's, not Harker, Hutter's carriage ride, um, where, you know, as in the book and like every version of Dracula, the cab driver that's taking him to Orlok's castle won't go past a certain point, mm-hmm. and so he's standing around waiting, wondering what to do, and then Dracula's coachman shows up and takes him to the castle. But of course the coachman is really Dracula himself, mm-hmm. or in this case Orlok, because he doesn't have any servants because he's a vampire and he eats them all, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, You know, nobody will come near his castle, so he. that's a sort of interesting tragic dimension or at least like pathetic dimension to the vampire, right? That he has to pretend that he has servants. And so, you know, do tricks like this, um, disguise himself as the cabman and so, so forth to hide the fact that really he's like complete, a complete loner. Um, and, uh, yeah. So the, the, the carriage that takes, uh, Hutter all the way up to Orlok's castle is shown in fast motion, so another undercrank shot. So it kind of like crazily comes up to him, um, and you could have like the
1: like
0: that sort of uh, uh music playing, the
1: Benny Hill, the theme Benny song? Hill theme.
0: Like yeah, it's like that kind of fast motion. So like in a you know Charlie Chaplin movie or something, this would be a funny moment. But I think it actually works pretty well as an effective creepy moment that this uh, carriage sort of has a different time to it than the other uh, things in the scene. Um, And then we also get a shot where um, they use the the negative of the image. So everything that would be black is white and vice versa. And we see the carriage that way. Mm. Um, And I thought that was a pretty cool visual effect as well.
1: Yeah, it's definitely creative. I like it.
0: Was there anything in the film that you still found scary after all these years?
1: Well, I think it's really impressive, the makeup and the prosthetics work, because that dude is creepy as hell. Yeah. And, like, imagine how traumatizing that must have been in 1922. Oh, Oh yeah. Oh, my God. That guy is freaky looking.
0: Yeah, and that's another change from the book. Because in the book, it's much more like other film versions where um count dracula is uh, kind of a suave mm-hmm. guy he's decent looking at least mm-hmm. um and charismatic uh, whereas here he's this like horrible creepy monster um and he's just barely able to kind of disguise himself as a human being when he's interacting with hutter right um Which, uh, yeah, that that makeup is super iconic. It's
1: great. It's awesome.
0: Yeah. There are certain moments that I think still kind of creep me out. Um, I really like when, near the end of the film, when Orlok is uh, feasting on the hellish elixir of Ellen's blood. Mm -hmm. Um, We get a shot of him where all we can see of him is his long fingers uh, sort of peeking at out over the edge of the bed and his head as he's chowing down on her neck. Um, but the cool thing about it is that he's not centered in the frame. He's kind of like down in the lower left portion of the frame. And so, uh, I don't know, there's something really unsettling about that, that image that kind of still gets me. I guess we should talk about German expressionism. Do you know anything about that?
1: I don't know. I'm a few bars.
0: Um, so German Expressionism is uh, an artistic movement in early German cinema that has been hugely influential on later uh, cinema. Not just horror, really it has been influential on horror movies. So like the universal horror movies really pick up a lot of the the aesthetic. Um, but even outside of horror movies, like film noir was really influenced by it. And then a lot of later films. Um, and modern viewers will be familiar with the work of Tim Burton. Um, So if you want to see a modern filmmaker who's like completely devoted to trying to recreate the aesthetic of uh, German expressionism, just look at like um, Edward Scissorhands or um, The Nightmare Before Christmas. It's all about light and shadow, extreme contrast between light and dark. Um, A lot of like, unrealistic architecture. Um you've got
1: Is that why you were obsessed with the architecture in this movie? Yeah, we were why you kept asking questions like every thirty seconds.
0: Yeah, we were we were talking while we were watching the movie, um, about uh the interesting architectural forms that we see in the film. We see a lot of arches that kind of come up to a point, which I found out is an aspect of Gothic architecture, so it's uh uh, very appropriate in a gothic horror movie um but yeah they're just like there's a lot of like weird unnatural angles that are used in um german expressionist uh, mise-en-scene and i think a more like the classic example of it would be uh the cabinet of dr caligari which came out two years earlier have you seen that one no okay well we gotta watch that one for this podcast sometime
1: What um, What? calamari? What?
0: The cabinet of Doctor Caligari. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it it almost the only way I can really describe it without just showing you it is it's like a morbid Doctor Seuss.
1: I'm, I'm interested.
0: <laughs> um. So yeah, it sort of it was a reaction against the attempt to be as realistic as possible in film. Um, and I've read that maybe part of the reason was that you know. Uh, German cinema just couldn't compete with Hollywood in terms of budget. So, in terms of having big, spectacular, realistic sets, they couldn't do that. But what they could do was be creative, and you know, do interesting things with the sets that Hollywood producers, who are always going for realism, would never do. Um, so, it's expressionistic in the sense that it's not trying to represent the way something actually looks. It's, it's trying to um, get at the feeling that it evokes. Um, in the case of Kaligari, it's trying to create a sort of nightmare world, a world of, of you know, the, uh, the dream uh, that the character is having. So I think Nosferatu is a much more subdued example of German Expressionism, um, particularly because there's so much on-location filming. So there aren't a lot of constructed sets. Um, But when the film is on a set, you can tell sometimes that it's not totally aiming for realism. Like um, when uh, we're in Ellen's bedroom, you look out the window and you see like a row of houses on the other side of the street in the background. And they're just, they look like a row of cardboard houses. Like they don't look very realistic, um, but they're very sort of pointy and interesting looking. I really like the location Uh, shooting in this movie the locations that they picked and the way that they shoot them i think it's really cool Um, and it's another point where um i prefer this one to the 1931 dracula where everything is on a set and sometimes they don't look the best um like uh the the boat sequence here i think is definitely better than when we see the boat on the ocean in the 1931 dracula it's like a little model boat in a tub somewhere (laughs) it looks pretty bad um here like they actually got like this you know old sailboat that looks realistic and i don't know where they got that thing um but they're actually on the ocean shooting it um so that's pretty neat yeah, so...
1: Max Schreck is the name of Christopher Walken's character in Batman Returns. Yep, that's a reference. Do you know anything about that?
0: Well, that is a reference. I mean, we've just been talking about how Tim Burton was so influenced oh. by German Expressionism, so that's a deliberate homage okay, got on it. his part. God, also, that movie. I've I've considered whether Shrek the Ogre could be
1: oh, uh, no. an homage,
0: because, I mean, obviously those... Uh, uh, those guys okay. must have also known about this and but I, I think it's just a coincidence because we'll
1: go with um,
0: Shrek in German I think means like shriek, like sh- you know, a scream <sighs> um, so I think that's where uh, that's why Shrek is called that because he's a frightful creature yep um, so yeah as far as I know there is no Shrek connection uh, no green ogre connection.
1: Anyway, this is a podcast about Shrek the Ogre.
0: Yes, from now on. <laughs> We've jumped the shark.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Um, one weird thing about these early Dracula adaptations that I've noticed that's kind of like this bizarre pattern is like, creepy animals and i'm doing air quotes mm-hmm. like there are animals in these movies that are, seem like they're supposed to be creepy like but they're the just hyena? random animals yeah
1: the random hyena <laughs> okay
0: yeah so in this movie when hutter is staying at the village on his way to orlock's castle we hear the villagers well we don't hear it. we see in the intertitles <laughs> that the villagers are worried about a werewolf and then we cut to a hyena running around <laughs> and it's like is this the werewolf? Yeah, uh this is a hyena clearly. I
1: uh,
0: which I don't know that they live in I, I'm gonna Transylvania. Go with No.
1: I'm thinking no.
0: Yeah, so it is strange to see a hyena in Europe, but uh why it's scary I'm not sure. Like
1: is it supposed to be so weird that you're scared?
0: I think maybe just are you just not supposed our... to
1: know what a hyena is?
0: I think maybe our our list of, like, animals that are officially creepy might just have changed, you know? Like, it's just, it's not a, a human universal that certain animals are creepy, just like, you know, and back in these days, um, uh, the early 20th century, um, pink used to be the color for boys' clothes and blue is the color for girls' clothes. So it's, like, one of those things where it changes and you kind of think feel like, oh, well, it must have always been this way, but it like wasn't. Like
1: Republicans and Democrats?
0: Yeah, well, yeah. Um, and cuz also in the 31 dracula there's some weird animals in that one too when we we get shots of dracula's castle where we see an armadillo and i think a potato bug
1: i thought you were just going to say potato
0: no you don't you don't see a potato
1: maybe they're so exotic that it's supposed to be creepy it's like so ooh this is a really exotic strange i animal. guess but I,
0: I don't think they would do that now like if they did an adaptation no, of dracula now. now we wouldn't cut to like his backyard and there's emus back there or something <laughs>
1: that would be pretty off-putting you've yeah. seen an emu jesus christ
0: well those are terrifying they're
1: terrifying
0: but just the fact that it's a i know a what usual trying animal to say, though. would not really right it work. would just be
1: like uh it would be very distracting but and the hyena of... was distracting
0: yeah but it kind of makes you realize like why is it not weird to see like bats and rats associated with scary things like what what do they ever do they're they're cute i like bats and rats
1: you like wild rats like if you saw a rat in the corner right now you'd be like oh yeah actually you might <laughs> <laughs> i take it back
2: yeah
0: i don't like spiders though nope, I, w- I am no scared spiders. of spiders,
1: not no that shot of the spider to me lasted 45 minutes. <laughs> I was just, I kept thinking, like, okay, okay, like we've seen enough. Okay. It was like the scariest part of the whole movie, it was just the spider spinning its web or whatever.
0: Yeah, we get an insert shot of a spider when uh, knock is talking about how the blood is the life and he wants to eat spiders to get their blood.
1: Mm. Um, of all the things. To drink blood from.
0: Well, there the, there's a, some sound reasoning behind it well, because they're
1: blood suckers themselves, right? So... so you
0: get their blood plus all the blood of the things that they've sucked blood. from. I'd just so... die
1: if I was a vampire and I like wanted to be humane or some shit. I I would just die. I'd be like, no, I'm.
0: I think there's a vampire that does that in Anne Rice. Yes. He decides to just starve himself, but he doesn't Louis. work.
1: Yeah. Right, he eats rats and shit. That's what I'm referencing.
2: Oh, I thought you were just...
1: Making crazy shit up? Yeah,
0: just imagining what you would do.
1: Nope. I'd eat people before I'd eat animals. I wouldn't be, like, humane like that. Like, anyway, this is a tangent.
0: So, we've been talking about what we would do if we were vampires. (laughs) Um
1: could be a whole episode i swear
0: yeah and it kind of makes me think like what do we make of the vampire as a monster like how do we read the vampire
1: what do you mean well
0: like different kinds of monsters seem to prey on different cultural anxieties Um, oh
1: you you want to know what it's like a metaphor Horror? Yeah,
0: I mean, do you think that the vampire is some kind of a metaphor or I'm, associated I, I, with something? I feel something? like you're
1: about to tell me. Are you about to tell me? No, I,
0: I don't have a...
1: You don't have a, an I don't have an anything?
0: argument, really. Um, I have a couple different ideas.
1: Okay, enlighten me.
0: Well, I mean, the one thing about Dracula in particular is he's he's a foreigner, right? Like, he comes from this weird country that's far away.
1: So this is going to be really sad. Okay.
0: So he's like an immigrant. So there's a fear of, I think, immigration and foreign people. People If you who are let different.
1: immigrants into your country, they will suck your blood.
0: Yeah. <laughs> he comes in and and he's like a he's like a parasite. And isn't this what we a still parasite. say about about yeah. immigrants? Well, like, it
1: is. Yeah.
0: Like they're they're you know leeching off of our welfare. They're taking and, our jobs. Yeah, they're taking our jobs. That kind of thing. Hmm. Um. So. I mean, not all vampires are foreigners, but, but Dracula and Orlok are are foreigners. They come in from outside and try to set up shop in, you know, the peaceful world of here. It's uh, Visborg in the original novel. It's it's London, which London is a lot less peaceful, I think, um, whereas Visborg is like Hutter and Ellen's relationship seems like so idealized here and they're almost like childlike the characters um they're very innocent and then this like horrible monster comes and um so yeah i feel like it might have to do with that also um you know some people have read uh, i think a lot of scholars read Orlock as a, a figure of um anti-semitism as well he sort of embodies a lot of the stereotypes that Germans had about Jews in those days. And not just Germans, but you know, anti Semites oh. in general. He's got the, like the the long hook nose, he's got these long fingers that indicate, you know, greed and grasping. Um
1: That's atrocious.
0: Yeah. So um I think you know, the film definitely would have would have uh, played on those anxieties that people had that, you know, there was this Jewish conspiracy and these, you know, uh, uh, wealthy Jews were controlling the global economy and they were destroying Germany and, you know, all the stuff that, you know,
2: Hitler also then played on and we know what happened next. What? i just kidding. Um, but
0: I don't think that that necessarily makes this an anti-Semitic film. Um, I guess it's, it's sort of like a weird thing, right? Like, um, when you have characters in a film that resemble stereotypes of a particular race or group, but they aren't members of that group in the work itself. Like, Count Warlock is never said to be a Jew in the film. Um, he just has some of those stereotypes. Or, like, I'm thinking of, like, Star Wars, like, um, Watto... Is another figure Mm. that's been associated with anti-semitism but Mm -hmm. you know in the film he doesn't he doesn't wear a yarmulke or anything he we don't see him go (laughs) to seder or you know uh dinner or anything like that um and so yeah like where at what point is it you know problematic to have that kind of thing
1: right but Um, i mean it's it's not a super far-fetched theory
0: yeah but one thing I think is kind of interesting is um at the same time that the film, I think, is playing on the anxieties that Germans had towards outsiders and towards Jews. Um, it's also critical of the mob uh, mentality, the sort of madness of crowds, and the tendency of people to uh, scapegoat people who are different. so sort of um, like
1: the Frankenstein thing again.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because when, when Nock escapes from the lunatic asylum, we get intertitles that are sort of judging the crowd of people for going after him. Um, it says that the people, because of the plague, they were ready for a sacrifice. Or it says something like that, right? They, they, they needed a sacrifice, and they chose Nock. So the idea is that you know, the people are just looking for a, a scapegoat, somebody to blame for this calamity that's happened to them. And they pick this crazy guy because he's a crazy weirdo, and not because he's actually the cause of the problem. And they all chase after him with their pitchforks, Um, and the scene almost becomes comic. Where that
1: scene was so funny.
0: Yeah, it's great. Just
1: that one part where they're throwing the scarecrow around.
0: Right. So we see uh...
1: hilarious.
0: It's kind of set up like a comedy shot, too, where we start. We it's it's such a long shot. It's so far away from the scarecrow that w- <laughs> it's hard for us to even totally tell that it's a scarecrow at first.
1: I wouldn't have known unless you told me because I am especially impaired because I didn't have my glasses. So,
0: yeah, especially if you didn't have glasses back then. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and we see the the uh, mob sort of uh, a bunch of people run over to the scarecrow and as they, <laughs>
2: they think as they, it's
0: him yeah they, they assume what? that it's knock at first but then as they get close they realize it's a scarecrow and some of them pick it up and start throwing throwing it around they you know, rip their, it
1: apart and like fling it
0: around right in their sort of angry frustration <laughs> that this wasn't what they were looking for oh
1: um, my god
0: so yeah i think you know that just that one shot almost by itself is an argument against. Um, the sort of mob mentality that ultimately, you know, led to the rise of the Nazis. Yeah. The sort of... But at the same time, you know, it's not like Nock is innocent. I mean, he did strangle that jailer guy, and he is uh, a sort of wannabe
2: vampire.
1: Yeah, he, um... He's got some issues he needs to work on.
2: (laughs) But, uh... Yeah, so there's that. Um, There's also, I
0: think, in this movie, uh, an undercurrent of anxiety about what's natural and what's not. Um, So the vampire is like a supernatural being, it seems. But one of the more interesting sequences to me in the film is the sort of interlude Where we're waiting for the ship carrying Orlok to come to Visborg, and we start watching um, uh, Professor Bulwer explaining to his students the weirdness of nature. Um, So he shows them a Venus flytrap, and then he shows them a carnivorous polyp. And then we're cutting to, um, as we talked about before. what's his name Knock in the lunatic asylum who where we get the insert shot of the fly being eaten by the um, spider so there's all these images of nature being cruel and parasitic and ghostly in the case of the polyp which Bulwer says is uh, just like a phantom because it's translucent kind of seems like a stretch to me
1: what is a polyp
0: Um, it looks like, it looked, in the movie, in the insert shot, it almost looks like a single-celled organism. It looks like something you'd see under a microscope.
1: Right. So. But it's
0: just, yeah, it's just this, like, tiny little thing. I guess the connection to the Venus flytrap is just that it's another thing that it doesn't look like it would eat other things, because it's such a simple little organism, but it does, and we see it eating another little doodad. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, the connection between Orlock and these different quote unquote monsters in the natural world that the scientist is explaining to us, um, is a little disturbing because it suggests that maybe Orlock isn't supernatural after all. Maybe the natural world is just kind of amoral and it's full of creatures that parasitize each other and prey on each other. You know, it's nature Red and tooth and claw, as Tennyson said, you know the the world of survival of the fittest that Darwin had um, sort of brought people's attention to, mm-hmm. and so maybe the vampire sort of represents that the sort of the idea that are we really any different from the rest of the natural world? Are we any better? Um, maybe human beings are also infected by this sort of ultimate amorality of Nature and we also prey upon each other and parasitize each other. Deep. I don't know. That that's another thing that I was thinking as we were watching the film this time. Do we have any other ideas about the ending of the film? It's a big change to have um, the Mina character have to sacrifice herself. We have like a virgin sacrifice kind of at the end of the movie um, to appease the monster. And uh, that's not something that later versions of the story really picked up. They picked up the idea that you can kill the vampire with sunlight. But I can't think of another version of the Dracula story where a virgin has to sacrifice herself to
2: kill him in the end. Um, so why do you think that that didn't really uh, take off?
1: Um, I don't love it. So maybe other people also didn't love it.
2: For what reason?
1: I just think that that's a silly thing to do,
2: mm.
1: you know, like, I know I'll just sacrifice myself for all these people. I, don't, <laughs> I, I understand that that's like a trope, like, oh, sacrifice yourself to save other people like the good of the many outweigh the good of the few or what?
2: The needs of
0: the many outweigh yeah. the needs of the Look, from I Star I
1: Trek? I learned that from Sailor Moon, okay? Like I don't know what you want. Anyway. I just I, I hate that I hate it. I hate mm. that trope. It's it's boring. Mm. I think on like a larger scale maybe, but like you wanna save your town. No one's gonna remember you in five years. Like get over yourself. She was just I don't know. I didn't mm. I wasn't overly attached to her.
0: Yeah, I know you didn't like her hair and that's pretty important.
1: Yeah, that's why she needed to die. Like I don't know.
0: I've... I thought her hair was was nice. she had these little you ringlets kind of hanging off the side of her you're head. You're
1: talking about.
0: It's kind of like something Princess Leia would wear, No.
1: Maybe. What's wrong with you? I don't know. I think if she was trying to save the world, I'd be like, "Okay, I guess." But it was just such a dramatic thing to do you know Yeah. Like couldn't you view you guys just like left town? Like just leave.
2: Right. Yeah. Take she,
1: your husband and just go. Like
0: so you felt like it was in, insufficiently motivated.
1: Sure.
2: Mhm.
0: Yeah, that's become like a running running theme in the podcast um for me. Yeah, like you you tend to balk at things the characters do where you don't feel like there was enough motivation behind it
1: um interesting is this therapy
0: okay so that's it for this week um join us next time why did I say week this isn't a weekly program um that's (laughs) it for this podcast uh (laughs) forever well we'll see um if we come back uh it'll be to talk about um what i can't stop talking about um the 1931 dracula starring bella lugosi um so join us for that
1: see you around